What you're about to hear is a conversation between the painter George Shaw and the novelist and art critic Patrick Langley. For the past 20 years, the main subject of George Shaw's work has been Tile Hill, a post-war council estate on the edge of Coventry, which he grew up on. His paintings, made with humbrol enamel paints, the type of paint commonly used by hobbyists and model makers, capture the estate's backyards, streets and alleyways, as well as the woods that lie just beyond them. They are almost always eerily devoid of people. The conversation that follows focuses on four artworks by George Shaw that are included in the exhibition Among the Trees. This conversation was due to take place at Hayward Gallery as part of a programme of talks accompanying the exhibition. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, it took place on the phone instead. So we're obviously conducting this interview not at the Hayward Gallery in person. I'm calling you from my flat in South London, um, where I haven't left the house for several days. Um, Are you in your studio? I'm in my studio here in the East Dartmoor, and my house is next door to the studio. I haven't seen another human being, actually, apart from the occasional cyclist who goes past at high speed down a little country lane for, I don't know, just 16 days? That's interesting, because one thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about is your connection, obviously, to the Tile Hill estate and the, the amount of attention that you're, you're giving over to this square mile, basically, that you grew up on. Um, so it might be interesting to think about basically what, what the Tile Hill was and how that relates to the history of, of Coventry. Perhaps you could describe what it was like, what is is like, um, in terms of its sort of layout and what it felt like to live there. It was a sort of suburb, really, that was newly created in the fifties. It would have been, it would have been farmland or wasteland, really, somewhere between Coventry and Birmingham and Solihull. Um, so they built a council estate, but I suppose what was what made the place we grew up in, we were kind of sandwiched between the um, old-fashioned sprawl of the city and the countryside. So one way you were facing the town and the other way you just had what essentially was woodland and um, fields and and then dotted about quite old trees, which would have been there long before the houses had appeared. Um, Other people have looked at my work thinking that it's some kind of urban experience but it isn't really it's it's very um i suppose the, the word i'm going for is warmth about it without sounding making it sound too cozy i mean it did that's kind of the architecture and the way of it, the way it looked but of course it didn't alter though it didn't it didn't alter unemployment it didn't alter um alcoholism it didn't alter any of them things um which i suppose is is a kick in the teeth to um, architecture and town planning changing people's lives because um, it kind of changes the looks of people's lives sometimes but in many ways the same old problems are experienced with different wallpaper. <laughs> we haven't actually mentioned the works in the show yet but there's there's three paintings. There's Trespasser 2, The New, New Romantic and The Heart of the Wood and that is paired with Woodsman 5, which is a large-scale drawing. I think particularly Trespasser 2 is a really interesting example of the kind of landscape you're describing, that kind of 
mixture of the urban that kind of has is also a gateway into the the more rural space the kind of idea of a town that is planned that comes from an architect's sort of sketchbook or blueprint but is also at the edge of something a bit more unruly um perhaps um i know that your paintings are very sort of dense with references and and meanings that might not always be apparent to the to the viewer so perhaps we could focus on that painting for a little while but before we do that maybe you could just describe it in your own words when you first see it is a painting of um a kind of scanty blossom i'm assuming it's hawthorn of some kind or blackthorn and uh that's sort of in the foreground it's growing out of the um the remains of a derelict building really probably the most i mean for me the most in your face sort of content is the atmosphere of the painting which is kind of quite gray it's quite a drab january stroke february kind of day but it's also what you've managed to capture and the colouring of it is that sense of it, the weather kind of saturating everything. When it's really miserable, you feel as if the the weather's kind of dissolving the edges of things and soaking everything and making everything kind of wet um, and filling it with a kind of, yeah, an atmosphere. So it's an incredibly atmospheric painting. Perhaps we should touch on the paints you use because I was really astonished to learn that you have, is it seven colours that you make all your paintings with? A choice is overrated, <laughs> as, as people in these, in these times are probably finding out. They're the Humbrol paint, the Airfix paints that are usually used to paint model kits by kids and um, desperate middle-aged men in, who've been banished from the house by their um, other halves, really. It was also the kind of paint that was just freely available. So you can buy it in hardware shops and you can post offices and stuff. Post offices used to sell all sorts other than letters. So you could buy them as part of your kind of household groceries, really, in a way in which you would never be able to buy oil paint or watercolour paint. The material dragged with it associations uh, of the homely or of the... Uh, of the amateur, it has its own. It has its its own qualities, which are quite, which I was eager to tap into. You would teenagers would use it to sniff. They put it in a plastic bag and sniff it to get a kind of high, um, together with aerosols and lighter fluid and stuff like that. It it comes with it as well as it having a use for, for painting airfix kits and the rest of it. It also has a misuse, a history of misuse, which I quite like. And also it would be using graffiti and and those kind of things, which um, the experiences that people who live on the edges of things do. <laughs> um, you, people didn't glue sniff in their gardens. They tended to glue sniff around the bushes or at the back of the garages or something. For myself, like when I, whenever I go through these places, there is all this, there's a very particular residue um these places that are kind of overlooked by the rest of the city, uh, the foresty areas in urban environments, there's a sense of, yeah, misuse, mischievousness, um, people doing illicit things that they want to keep hidden um, from the sort of the gaze of the society at large. But that that's also comes with it a kind of a sort of like maybe punkish refusal to 
fit in or there might be a sense that um, there's a, also a, a, a freedom that comes with it, which shouldn't be over-romanticised, of course, because these also can be quite dangerous places or places that, um, you, you know, you might dump a body or something and to use a bit of a grim cliche about what um, what these places might kind of represent. They're the kind of activities and the kind of places where people actually live their honest lives. The way that teenagers and... Um, and other people carve their way through bushes and the backs of garages to make new pathways and new places to to habit, it, contrary to to the architectural spaces that the town planners have invi- and the lives that they've envisaged for these people. Uh, I love the way in which fences are removed because that's the easiest way to get to the chippy, and it's like a battle between how people want to live their lives and how other people want to see their lives being lived. And I think it's, a, you know, in many ways it's an allegory for order, really, being imposed upon people who refuse to have it. <laughs> I really love that, that phrase, desire lines, those kind of paths that people wear through open spaces, which I guess are kind of like rebellious in their own way because they're suggesting that people will cut their own paths through a given space and they behave in unpredictable ways i think that the titles of your paintings really bring a lot of meaning to them um one of the other paintings that we have in the um haywood show is called the new romantic and it's a painting of a tree seen pretty close up and it's right in the bang in the center of the composition and it's a real um real focal point um slightly reddish bark and then all around it there's a very rich verdant um forest scape that sort of feels quite closed in and quite private space and then bang in the center of the painting on the bark there's a kind of graffitied heart could you talk a little bit about this painting and what what the title means really in in relation to the work the painting got called the new romantic mainly because i thought it was a hugely romantic gesture and the, the heart on the tree um went through three stages when I first saw that that tree, it had a swastika in illuminous green paint, high-vis paint. And that the swastika was painted out by an illuminous green heart. And then someone then came along and painted the heart silver. So it had a really sort of uh, romantic, graceful defeat <laughs> um, of, of, of evil going on in it, which I quite like, which sounds, which sounds quite... 20th century it also sounds quite fairy tale like as well but it also it was a nod towards the whole um, romantic movement in literature and painting from the 18th century but also to do with you know Wordsworth and 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 all those boys and uh, the resurgence of romantic of romance during the war period in the 20th century with Nash and Sutherland and and those painters like those. But also, round about the 80s, a whole subculture of people dressing up and listening to a type of, like, got Bowie or Visage and calling themselves or being called um, New Romantics. There's, there's something about subculture and teenagers um, that were very... that the woods were very attractive to. So you could quite often, instead of finding people wearing barber jackets... And dogs, you would often find 
skinheads or punks sitting in the woods, listening to music, um, drinking cans, smoking, and just generally getting up to their lives out of the sight of grown-ups, really. Um, and there's something quite... I've always found, even then, I always found something quite beautiful about these um, characters in the woods, almost like um, something from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, they're at once very recognisably sort of urban, rural, um, edgelandy kind of places that have that kind of uh, almost tactile sense of if you want realism to them, you can really, I can really picture myself there and I feel like I've walked through these kinds of places. And yet at the same time, they kind of carry something about the way you paint them. They sort of carry this sort of more fairy tale or magical, if you want, um, kind of in feel to them. I was just wondering if that is something that you feel, do you think that's an accurate description? And also, are there kind of painters that might have influenced that kind of approach? I'm thinking of, like, an, an English tradition. If, if I'm honest, a lot of it's just luck and accident. <laughs> um, and these are, the paintings are almost like a, the residue or the what falls out of a certain way of thinking and a certain way of looking. It's, it's more having a certain atmosphere and a certain uh, uh, amount of references that I want to pour into this space of time that I'm making the painting, really. And that can be a result of things I'm watching or listening on the, uh, on, on the TV and radio or um, on my albums, records or books or, or, what, or what have you. I mean, for example, that painting, The Heart of the Wood, came after spending 18 months working in a studio which had been given as being part of the, the artist in residence at the National Gallery. And then finding that the paintings of some of Titian or Poussin that, that seemed to me the the highest points at which art could get you know in the National Gallery that they deal with the big themes of art love death transformation mythical figures mythical stories that seems about as far removed as the subject matter of the paintings which I'd become associated with, and also with my, my life. Um, and yet these little piles of cans and little woodland fires seem to be the very subject of, a, of Poussin's the, um, the Triumph of Pan. Those myths seem to be played out by groups of teenagers and punks in the late 1970s and 1980s with little reference to the myth of Ovid, <laughs> but very much in reference to their own desires. <laughs> and I think what kind of happens with a painting like that is, because it's a fairly recognisable world, in fact the trees are trees and the, grass, the ground looks like ground, the, the look of it doesn't challenge your conceptions of, of the way the world should look in a way that somebody who's not been to an art gallery or had an art education, can actually see that as a, as a place that they would know. I think they're very simple. They're very st hugely straightforward, um, like, like the greatest of pop songs, really. And then hopefully they become more than that because I've kind of hopefully put a bit more in, um, just like a lot of people who write pop songs probably do, you know, something that takes three minutes to record uh, and 
two minutes to write um, lasts half a century in people's lives. <laughs> um, we should we should maybe describe the painting. Um, it's sort of like the most wooded, even even more so than the New Romantic. I think it's there's a real sense of a, a real depth of forest. You can sort of see the trees stepping off into the distance and getting getting smaller and smaller as they sort of retreat into this world of green greenery um and that's that forms the sort of top half of the of the painting roughly um mm. and then it and in the foreground the bottom half you've got as you mentioned this kind of uh bare patch of dirt really like a um soil and tree roots running through it snaking through it and a couple kind of reaching across the composition like vines almost and then in the center there's a kind of very recognizable um kind of rudimentary fire pit that's been built by a series of bricks that are kind of um formed into a circle around a pitch of sco- pit of scorched earth and then there's um there's these kind of ubiquitous cans that you find everywhere uh beer cans I'm presuming um so there's a sense of I mean, to me, it looks a bit like a stage, like a kind of... It has this theatrical quality to the way you've arranged the composition. Um, like, I can I can imagine as... And it to me, it really it evokes that feeling of having walked, as you as you say, you've, you've stumbled across this um, environment that there's clearly been a party and all you've got is this kind of residue everywhere, um, which immediately kind of might prompt you to kind of imagine what what did happen here and and what lives were being lived here but all you have are the kind of is the kind of evidence the scattered evidence i think i'm right in saying that you don't ever paint pictures of with that include any people in them the kind of narratives such as they are, are always kind of off stage as it were if that's the right way or kind of implied um do you think that's something that you would want to talk about it's a feeling that I've kind of had for a long time that you've always missed the party. So I've always had something of the the visitor or the archaeologist and you're never in the middle of a thing. You always feel that you're there to... that you've been put there to observe it rather than enjoy it, which I suppose is... I think probably a lot of writers and artists and stuff kind of feel it have something of that feeling, really. I can remember somebody saying to me that I was trying to paint my way out of an estate, and I was kind of... I was trying to paint my way in, in a way, I think. I think I was... I never despised or looked down upon the group of lads who used to hang around the bottom of our street with their cars and their fags and their wolf whistles. I always kind of wanted to know how I could be part of it. (laughs) And lots of my paintings are made, there's no people in them. Uh, I think it's, it has uh, a f- fairly lonely aspect, the fact that the only person seeing the scene is the artist or the viewer. You're the only, aud- you're the only audience member for a play that you wrote. <laughs> well, no, I think that, that is a, it's a really interesting way of putting it and thinking about the painting as a stage for your imagination and sort of inviting the viewer into that space that you've kind of, you've laid the props, you've sort of 
um, selected the the arena, as it were. But um, in terms of how the audience read into that that world, that kind of empty world is is up to them. Uh, it seems to me, which is one of the more interesting and sort of f- fascinating as- aspects of your work, I think, is the fact that they are quite open, I would say, compositionally, but also to interpretation. I think I, I wanted to leave, uh, I think, some a space for the whole th- for the whole scene to be haunted, and that there is an after. I mean, there's an after the party feel to it about a painting like that, Heart of the Wood, in the sense that, as well, the Heart of the Wood, the, the title of it with a little nudge, a reminder for myself that Ridley Walker is one of my favourite books. That's a, a whole narrative that takes place after the party, really, after civilization, where people are finding bits of machinery and bits of religious imagery and trying to construct worlds and new ways of thinking around these artefacts, like worshipping a crankshaft. There was something in my work... It started off as being fairly um, nostalgic and nostalgia-driven, which is, a, in some ways, a looking back. But there was also a thing which seemed to be a looking forward to a world in which you didn't didn't exist at all because you were you were extinguished. <laughs> Something. I mean, Nabokov writes about this in the beginning of his of his memoir, Speak Memory, where he describes that man as giving little thought to the abyss from where he came because he's overshadowed by the fear of the abyss to where he's going. <laughs> and But they're both are the same, in a sense. The looking back and the looking forward are essentially taken to their extremes. They're a vision of a world in which you no longer exist in it. <laughs> I mean, I think that's something that's pretty in the air as well at the moment, um, obviously. Yeah, and what makes it really intriguing is, is this apocalyptic kind of narrative that we're almost rushing to see ourselves in because we've always had it on the edge of our consciousness, I think, is it's not tinged with terror, but it's tinged with mediocrity. <laughs> People wondering how they're not they're going to get their pasta or their toilet rolls. I, I think that's, that's what makes it the predictions or the story writing rather than predictions of people like Ballard interesting because they wrote into it the everydayness of the end of the world. <laughs> it's really interesting to think about the way that um, things that are in the air, moods, um, are very, very legitimate kind of fears about things ending kind of inhere in the way that we read read art in general but particularly it's really fascinating to hear about how these kind of as you say like atmospheric ways of thinking apocalyptic ways of thinking are kind of built into in some ways um the the way that you paint and the things that you think about when you paint um but seeing as we've touched on all three paintings i thought maybe we could finish by seems a bit remiss not to mention all four of the works um maybe we could talk a little bit about your large-scale drawing, um, which is also in the show. It's called Woodsman 5. Maybe you can explain the title about and, and what that means and how it resonates with you. There were six drawings in a s- sequence, and they're all of trees which have either um, fallen down, been pushed over, been knocked down. Anyway, trees that have come to the end of their, of their tether, really, <laughs> or their life. 
um, to cut a long story short, they were made in response to the, to my dad's death in 2006 when I was in the woods looking at oh, just taking a stroll and maybe taking my camera with me. It just seemed, I suppose, as a result of my dad's death, that was what I was focusing on, these things that had come to their end. The title comes from, it's the name of a pub on the estate and it was a pub which, was, which we'd been to as, you know, which I'd been to and my mum used to work there years ago. And then it, it kind of got bit burnt down and then was raised off the face of the earth. Uh, I did a couple of paintings of it as a pub. I did a couple of paintings of it, of the wasteland in which it stood. And the title of those draw, paint drawings of the, of the felled trees or fallen trees um, just takes its name from the, the name of the pub, which had one of the worst pub signs ever made or painted of a of a man chopping a tree down. And the woodsman always seemed to be this figure of um, almost like time itself coming to remove things at their appropriate hour, sometimes before and sometimes well after, <laughs> whether they be buildings or people. Um, he became a figure that was both uh, quite frightening and quite um, fatherly, I suppose, in a way. That reminds me of because um, I know that James Joyce is of a, a figure of interest to you, and what what he said about <clears throat> Ulysses being that if uh, if 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 Dublin were destroyed overnight, uh, you would be able to rebuild it based on on his novel because it was that kind of uh, exhaustive and faithful to the original. Um, is there a similar thing? Do you think as a whole in your project when it comes to the Tile Hill? Well, I think in, in the same way that, um, of course, Joyce is momentously incorrect. <laughs> um, I don't think you could. You couldn't rebuild Dublin, but you could build a Dublin that would be the same shape as Joyce's view of Dublin. You know, different maps of, of the same city can exist and there are different routes through a city and there are different areas of interest depending on your, on your person or your class or your political persuasion or what have you. Um, um, your sexual orientation can, can change how you view a city about in terms of the places you go or places you can't go. And I think that's what happens. You couldn't rebuild the area of the world um, that I paint, but, you would re, but it would be built, it could be built using my pictures as a plan, but it would be unrecognisable to any of the people that lived there. Um, that's. I think that's a really interesting note to end on. So um, maybe we could, maybe we could call it call it a day there. Um, all right, George. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Cheers now. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you.